Thank you for downloading and listening to This Pathological Life. If you're interested in continuing the story, we have a second series called This Medical Life. Please download it and subscribe now. Dr. Travis Brown, why do we need a podcast called This Pathological Life? Every disease has its own story to tell. So we're going to tell them. We knew the world would not be the same. Few people laughed. Few people cried. Most people were silent. I remembered the line from the Hindu scripture, the Bhagavad Gita, Vishnu trying to persuade the prince that he should do his duty and to impress him takes on his multi-armed form and says now I am become death the destroyer of worlds I suppose we all thought that one way or another this episode of this pathological life is all about radiation Dr. Travis Brown, I'm hoping we get glowing reviews for this one. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> and I mention that because whenever I hear the term radiation, I remember growing up and my dad was a uh, member of St. John's Ambulance and he had the hat he'd bring home. It had a white top that was glow in the dark. Mm. And I had my watch, which was glow in the dark. And I remember that that was a form of radiation at work there. That's what made that possible to glow in the dark. And in latter years, I believe, as a society, we've moved away from that sort of fancy clothing. We have. We have. Look, it's, a, it's an amazing story, radiation. It's one of scientific discovery, but also not recognising the own dangers of what they were dealing with. Uh, our story starts in, in 1934. In, uh, when a patient would have turned up to a hospital, she was 67 years old, and she would have been experiencing progressive weakness and lethargy, probably issues with bleeding. She would have had increased infections. Uh, the investigations on her would have re- established that she had anemia. Mm. Uh, she was neutropenic, so she didn't have any white cells. And she would have lost, she would have been thrombocytopenic, so she would have lost all of her uh, platelets to be able to clot. So what we call that is being low in all of those is uh, pancytopenic. So if they had done a bone marrow on her at the time, it would have almost been empty, uh, what we say hypocellular. There wouldn't have been any cells to produce any red blood cells, no white blood cells, uh, or even platelets, megakaryocytes. The patient died. Uh, she died of what we would call today aplastic anemia, effectively bone marrow failure. This is uh, Marie Curie. Oh. So she ended up, uh, she was a phenomenal person. I'm sure we could, I wish we could spend more time uh, looking at her history. She was, but she discovered uh, radium and polonium, and she worked with this for over 34 years. Uh, now, just a glance at radiation, uh, you know, three types, uh, main types. Uh, alpha particles, which are heavy, they consist of two, two neutrons and two protons. They travel short distances but can be stopped by a piece of paper. You have beta particles, which are uh, electrons. Um, they can penetrate the skin, but they don't go all the way through. Uh, and then you have gamma particles, which are the main one. They don't have a mass or a charge. Uh, they can penetrate and go through the entire body. It's the one that we mainly use with medicine. Mm-hmm. It's the one we mainly use with medicine for x-rays. Um, 
but it can't go through concrete and lead, so that this stops it. The problem is with radium, it emits all three, and it has energy that damages DNA. And so if uh, the DNA damage is small, the body can repair it. If it's constant or large, so much damage happy that the cell ends up dying. Now, with radiation, we know that dividing tissue is much more affected than non-dividing tissue. So it's fantastic for treating cancer because it's dividing most of the time. But it affects other areas as well. So when we look at the skin, if, if skin is affected by radiation, it gets red. And if it's persistent, it can be red for a long time. With regards to, you know, two or three weeks later, it comes back even redder. Uh, if it's a large dose, you can get blisters and ulceration, hair loss and abnormal pigmentation. The bone marrow is very, very sensitive to radiation. And so you will get, if it's a low dose, a transitory loss. Uh, if it's too long, again, as Marie Curie, it eventually will end up killing all the cells. Mm. Gastrointestinal, again, because you're dividing, constantly replacing that radiation fixer. And reproductive organs, such as testis and ovaries, too much will result in sterility. That's it, why I don't wear glow-in-the-dark underpants. <laughs> they had those. Oh, did they, they really? Yeah, they did. Uh, and, and that was the thing. You have eyes. Uh, if your eyes are affected, it becomes opacified. And so you'll get cataracts from the radiation that comes on through. But they didn't know this. They didn't know that this is what radiation could do. They discovered it. And to be honest, they thought it was a miracle cure. So then if we look at Marie Curie, she was a remarkable woman. And we're just going to go cursory past her. But she was born in 1867 in Warsaw. Her parents were two teachers. Her mother died when she was 10 years old of TB. But she learnt maths and physics at a time when it wasn't really permitted that women were to learn, uh, that, uh, you know, she couldn't go to the University of Warsaw because it was all male. So she ended up learning all of this in an underground type of secret way, mm. but managed to go to Paris and get her master's in physics in 1891. She met and married her husband, Pierre, Pierre Curie, and they formed a, an amazing duo that when radiation was identified, she was able to isolate and find a mineral called pitchblende, which was more radioactive than uranium, and was able to isolate through that radium and polonium. So for this in 1903, she shared the Nobel Prize with Pierre in physics and ended up in 1911 winning a Nobel Prize again for chemistry. Her daughters, she had two daughters during this time, and one of them also won the Nobel Prize in 1935. Now, Pierre died, unfortunately, in a, in, a, in a traffic accident. Again, Marie was championing X-ray use in 1914 when the war started. Now, it was around this time that we start to get, which will be, we'll come back to in a little bit, uh, two doctors who started finding that if you mix radium with paint you can get glow-in-the-dark paint that can be used. Mm. And so what Marie started to do at that time was radium became the most valuable product in the world. For a single gram, it was 
$120,000, which is equivalent to $2.2 million in today's standards. So she was just trying to buy radium now, even though she had discovered it. But there were a few warning signs about the dangers of radium. Pierre Curie, when he was alive, said that he didn't trust a kilo of pure radium because it was likely to burn off all of his skin, destroy his eyesight, and would probably kill him. Again, the warnings were there, but this was a fantastic Mm. new product coming through. Marie Curie was known to walk around with test tubes of radium in her pockets. Her notebook from 1899 to 1902 is still radioactive and will be for 1,500 years. And we're about to get to the radium girls, who were women who were paid to paint the clock faces that bore the brunt of what we learnt about radiation damage. I worked in the biggest room because there were over 100 girls worked in there. So we just figured, well, we got a little radium left in our jars. We won't, they're going to be well cleaned out. We got to get new for starting after lunch. So we paint our faces up and put mustaches and a couple of girls painted their ears. And, and one time we had one girl that even painted her teeth and, leave, and held her mouth open till it dried on there. See, it dried. And then the three of us, we went in the dark room to make faces at each other, see. And then you can. You don't see nothing, nobody. All you see is the radium. This pathological life continues now, and Travis, I am taking notes for a lawsuit against my dad for making me, well, giving me the chance to wear that glow-in-the-dark hat. So please continue on. I'm, <laughs> I'm taking copious notes. So the paint that they... Uh, that they discovered or created uh, by by Dr. Von uh, Sokoki mm-hmm. uh, was called Undark. And this was part of the era where they thought radium was believed to be a fantastic cure-all. So pharmacists were starting to put it into dressing and pills and even tonic water that you could drink. Uh, it was believed to be a cure for cancer for hay fever, for gout or constipation. And it was included in products such as underwear and lingerie, <laughs> butter, milk, toothpaste, which guaranteed a brighter smile every time you brushed with it, uh, even makeup. Uh, this was just – I'm not quite sure what they, what they thought it was, but it was just a, a, you know, a glowing – what well, we do have uh, a penchant for the novel as humans. We love novelty. Yeah. And so, yes, of course, we rush to it. Well, I, look, this glowed in the dark. So, <laughs> as I say, novelty, but, it, but we just didn't know. And then, again, we come across the war and this illuminescence quality starts to become very, very important because women were started to employ to paint hand watches so the dials on instruments and watches started to become very good because you didn't need to have a light to see in the dark in wartime. And so the women were paid 1.5 cent per watch and could earn up to three times what a normal factory worker would earn. And they ended up being the top 5% of female wage earners that could earn up to $20 per week. And there's a saying when they did it. So they're trying to paint hand watches, uh, so the the arms of the hand. So there's a technique that they used, which was lip dip paint. So they would lip 
So put the, the paintbrush in their mouth to make it fine, dip it into the radium, oh. and then paint the hand wash. And then you would do that over and over again. Now, this started in 1916. And in 1919, 2.2 million luminous watches were produced. And this was highly radioactive. So, again, the women were told that it was perfectly safe. Some of the women even painted their nails, their teeth, and their faces with the paint because, again, it was a novelty. And after a shift, the women were literally glowing. Goodness me. So by this stage, though, radium was so valuable that the women, once their shift had finished, would go to a dark room where they would be brushed down from all their sparkling dust, which would then be put into a dustpan collected for the next day. It was, in, it was on their clothes. It was in their, uh, on their backs, on their skin. Uh, and again, they were sort of glowing. The only way they could make this absolutely perfect is to go home to a home made out of asbestos, <laughs> and they would just have all the good things of his I, As I say, it, it boggles the mind, mm. but it wasn't until 1921, so five years later, that the original painters started to get symptoms. So they're starting to get toothaches, mouth sores, it's painful to eat, they're getting gum and jaw pain. They're getting aches in their hips and some of the joints. And then teeth start to fall out. And no one knew why. And then people started to die. So there was one case of a woman who got a mouth ulcer so large that it perforated her jugular vein and she ended up dying from hemorrhage. There's another case of a woman whose jaw was so decayed when her dentist saw her, he simply just pulled it out of her mouth. And so these women were getting tumours of the jaw, the neck, the bone and tongue. These were sarcomas and leukemias. There was a, a, an industrial hygiene division of New Jersey that investigated and, and that ended up saying that the lip pointing practice uh, was dangerous. The diagnosis that was put associated with this was called radium jaw. Uh, and in 1925, uh, one of the original painters, her name was Grace Fryer, tried to sue the company. It took her two years to find anyone that would take the case. By that stage, four other women had joined, uh, so that's five in total, and they were termed by the media as the Radium Girls. Now, in 1927, they ended up taking the company to court, but the company settled in 1928. And they settled for $10,000 each out of court, and they would have pay $600 per year for their living and medical expenses. However, the women had trouble collecting because they were so weak at the time, they couldn't go into the court to raise their hand to take the oath to get the money. So it was estimated that several thousands of people were exposed by this time. Uh, the company responsible fought the cases at and it wasn't until 1938 when the Supreme Court rejected the last appeal from the organization because so many occupational uh, regulations had come in to pr protect that they were fighting. This takes us to 1939, where we find the einstein Silard letter written to President Roosevelt. In the course of the last four months, it has been made probable through the work of Joliot in France, as well as Fermi and Silard in America, 
that it may become possible to set up a nuclear chain reaction in a large mass of uranium, by which vast amounts of power and large quantities of new radium-like elements would be generated. Now, it appears almost certain that this could be achieved in the immediate future. This phenomenon would also lead to the construction of bombs, and it's conceivable, though much less certain, that extremely powerful bombs of a new type may thus be constructed. A single bomb of this type, carried by boat and exploded in a port, might very well destroy the whole port together with some of the surrounding territory. However, such bombs might very well prove to be too heavy for transportation by air. So that was written in August 1939, uh, and the initial steps towards the Manhattan Project were taken in December 1939. This was formally set up in 1942, uh, where we've got uh, J. Robin Oppenheimer, who was the lab director in 1943. And in July 16, 1945, in New Mexico, under the Trinity Test, they detonated the very first atomic bomb. And here's the thing that sort of bends my mind a little bit. It's the exposure of the radium girls whose injuries were so detrimental and public that the, the scientists who were developing the atomic bomb took so many precautions. So the radium girls' exposure saved the lives of the scientists who developed the atomic bomb. That's irony, writ large, isn't it? Every cloud has a silver lining, except nuclear mushroom clouds, which have a lining of strontium-90, cesium-137, and other radioactive isotopes. Upon detonation, atoms are literally gutted and gluttoned at temperatures exceeding that of the surface of our sun. When little boy, was detonated over Hiroshima, only 1.38% of its uranium actually fissioned, which means the fission of merely 0.7 grams of uranium, that's less than the weight of a banknote, was enough to kill 80,000 people and destroy two-thirds of the city's buildings. Travis, let's complete our coverage of this great leap forward with the the final act of this episode about radiation. The story of the atomic bombs being used in the war are well known, but uh, to bring it home to Australia, we've got the story of Maralinga. Uh, So this is in the remote western areas of South Australia. Uh, Between the years 1956 and 1963, the British detonated seven atomic bombs at this site. Uh, One of them was twice the size of the bomb taken at Hiroshima. Uh, And the first bomb was set off two months before the uh, Olympic Games in Melbourne in in 1956. Uh, Even some of the radioactive fallout was detected in Townsville, 3,000 kilometres away. So the story of this is where the British approached the US and Canada and said, hey, can we test our bombs? Um, They said no. Uh, Our Prime Minister, uh, Robert Menzies, agreed without even uh, consulting Cabinet. So was keen to, to have them across. And between 1950 and 1960s, 35,000 military personnel uh, ended up living at Maralinga. And now this is uh, equated to the size of Manhattan. It had a permanent airstrip, uh, railway access, roads, uh, even a swimming pool. And what they did there was two parts. There was a major trials, which were the atomic bombs, and then there were minor trials, which we'll get to a little bit later. 
But the atomic bomb detonation, they had steel and concrete towers that they would build to detonate them. Uh, these were vaporized on, on detonation. They had hundreds of servicemen who would watch the explosion in the open that would wear nothing other than, you know, short shirt and uh, long socks. Once the explosion was done, the RAAF airmen would fly through the mushroom cloud uh, and conduct sampling. And this was usually without any adequate instructions, uh, radiation monitoring device or even protective wear. Uh, and the servicemen responsible for decon decontaminating the, uh, the aircraft were then also exposed. Of the minor trials, over 200 of these experiments were conducted over 10 years. And this included setting fire and exploding things like uranium and plutonium to see what would happen when they used conventional high explosives on them. Uh, and the problem with this is the explosions are powerful, but this highly reactive material would just be dispersed, but not go too far. So the problem with all of this that I haven't even mentioned, and clearly they didn't really care about, about the forgotten people who were in the area. Now, I would say forgotten, but I think they were just probably ignored. There was one person responsible for locating and warning the indigenous inhabitants called the Anganu people. He was a native patrol officer by the name of Walter McDougall. There's one report from Walter where he raised an incident where the Mulpuddy family was found camping at a crater. Eddie Mulpuddy... She was pregnant at the time, and they were traveling the Great Victorian Desert Plains, where they found this crater. The ground was still warm, and rainwater had collected at the bottom, which they drank from. They set up a campfire, and they were able to catch rabbits very easily, because they seemed to be disorientated around the time. Two weeks later, Eddie delivered a stillborn baby. Later in her life, she had children with physical deformities and mental issues. And if you thought this information changed anything about the project, there's a quote from the chief scientist of the Commonwealth Department of Supply to Walter McDougall's manager in 1956. Your memorandum discloses a lamentable lack of balance in Mr. McDougall's outlook in that he is apparently placing the affairs of a handful of natives above those of the British Commonwealth of Nations. So it's estimated that 1,200 people were exposed uh, to what was what they refer to as uh, Puyu, which is uh, black mist uh, interpreted. The bomb site ended up being referred to uh, as Mamu Puka, which is also interpreted as big evil. So the symptoms these patients got were sore eyes that could eventually lead to blindness, that have skin rashes, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, cancer rates, increased lung disease, and of course, death. The British ended up taking an operation called uh, Operation Brumby, and this was in a cleanup effort by British and, uh, and Australian government. And the site was closed uh, in 1967. Now, this operation tried to dilute and bury any of the contaminated material. But the job was done poorly, and it wasn't until 1995 and in 2000 that a proper cleanup was undertaken at the cost of $100 million. The land was returned to the Tajataja people in 1984. They got $13 million in compensation and another $6 million to maintain the township. For the non-Indigenous people, the exposed British and Australian servicemen 
30% died of cancer. There was the McClellan Royal Commission in 1984 that conducted an investigation. They conducted an investigation, however, they were unable to conclude that each specific case was caused by the tests. And no one was able to speak about these events because they were covered by the UK Official Secrets Act. Of course. So what do we have today? There is three or four people that live there uh, currently who are caretakers or, or tour guides of the area, so you can go and visit it. There's a deserted military installation. We have 22 major pits, which extend up to 50 feet deep and which can be 15 metres wide. They're encased in concrete to protect it from radiation. There are some craters that are in a perfect circle, but vegetation is still unable to grow there because any time the roots get down to a certain depth, it just dies. We have areas where those minor experiments, we have about 22 kilograms of plutonium that's just been scattered about. So there's areas sectioned off. These have a radioactive life, a half-life of over 24,000 years. You've painted a great picture, Travis. I wonder if our two families should holiday there jointly sometime soon. (laughs) Again, it's just one of those things that this didn't happen hundreds of years ago. This was our government. This was our grandparents' government. It's staggering that this is what's happened. Nullarbor Plains, some 600 miles from Adelaide, just north of the Transcontinental Railway, is the remote and lonely village of Maralinga. Here was the site of an experiment with man's most revolutionary discovery, the atom bomb. Camera towers raised several miles from blast point are to record the blinding flash which the human eye cannot watch. I'll tell you about what happened 1953. Well, I didn't know it was a big community. Used to be in 40 late 40s and early 50s. The bang was one big one, but sound like other little um, banks in between. And uh, the ground shook. Then uh, mid-morning, we seen uh, radiation full out, or what we're calling it, black, black smoke. Couldn't see the sun. It was like a light cloud and uh, the winter cross and after that a lot of people got sick right when I lost straight away in three weeks then I become a blind totally blind 1957 only one thing we proved through our lawyers and the British scientists and there was radiation full out over Waladina from Totem 1 and uh, that's all we proved Everything else, we just couldn't. This Pathological Life is produced by ClinPath Pathology in South Australia. Episode notes, references and learning objectives, when applicable, can be found at thispathologicallife.com.au and you can contact the hosts on Twitter via at Dr. Travis Brown or at Steve Davis. Thanks again for listening, and just a reminder, if you haven't done it yet, have a quick search in your podcast app for our second series, This Medical Life. Dr. Travis Brown has rolled up some extra guests, some extra topics, and we continue the story there, and we'd love to have you along.